Hello, hello, and welcome to the Scene from Above podcast, Season 13, Episode 2, the podcast that aims to showcase the greatest and latest in EO while keeping inclusivity and representation at the forefront. This episode is supported by UP42 and Geo Awesomeness. My name is Gopika, and today I'm joined by Morgan, and we'll be your hosts interviewing an amazing woman in remote sensing. Hey, Morgan, how are you? Hey, Gopika. Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, I'm so excited about this episode to be able to share it with everyone. And um, we've recorded this a couple of weeks ago with our friend Karen and, and collaborator, really. Um, Dr. Karen Joyce is based in Australia and just has an exceptionally interesting history with remote sensing. Um, so we get to hear a lot of that today on, on today's episode interview with her. Um, you'll hear about, you know, when she came from going through the military, when she was working on her PhD at the same time, um, then working with these massive drones, how she got into to, uh, drone remote sensing, and then leave off the conversation with some really interesting um, work that she's been doing more recently um, to increase representation and diversity in remote sensing in terms of age and gender. Check out, she's really active on Twitter, um, and she has an amazing YouTube um, channel, so it's, it's a great place to start if you want to learn more as well um, after the podcast. We'll put all the links in the resources, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How are you coping with the strikes and the daycare closures and everything else? How is work-life-child uh, balance going on? It's going. Um, yeah. So uh, in Ontario, we had a strike, as you mentioned, um, and our daycare was closed for a couple of days um, because while it's in a school, it's not technically, um, you know, the teachers weren't on strike. So it was closed because of all the facility people. Um, so, you know, these things come up and I'm really happy to have a supportive team, I guess, is really important on my end. Um, illnesses, constant daycare illnesses, baby home, going to, you know, wildfire sat user and science team uh, with a baby on my lap for a lot. She's learning a lot about satellites at a very young age. So that's not a bad thing. Um, but it's, I guess, the reality of being a parent in STEM right now for us all. And um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you were also away from her at different conferences, right? Um, you were at Geo for Good and Picora 22. Uh, could you just summarize everything like in a sentence and maybe talk about uh, what's the latest thing and what's coming into remote sensing? Yeah, I'm at Geo for Good, I, we learned so much more about how Google Earth Engine is commercializing and how this amazing technology is being used to improve uh, the pretty dire climate change situation, they believe, and rightly so, that if we give these tools to businesses, they're the ones who can actually make a difference in their supply chain practices. So to see some of the work that they're doing there to be able to make more mindful, um, environmentally friendly uh, supply chain decisions was really exciting using Earth Engine. Um, a lot of technology from folks that we know um, uh, like uh, Keiko at Climate Engine, some of the work she's led, Keiko Nomura. Um, also, it was really exciting to me um, at both Geo for Good and Pokora, the involvement of new perspectives in remote sensing um, and satellite missions in um, discussing the importance of Earth observations. Um, Nikki Tooley from the Navajo Nation spoke at, um, at Geo for Good about, you know, involving Navajo Nation members in collecting samples and discussing, you know, drought monitoring techniques. Um, at Pokora, there was a really awesome panel about geovalue, basically how from all the leaders of different space agencies and um, and talking about the importance of stories. So we can communicate uh, metrics all we want and numbers, but the real power in getting something funded and having meaning is, is communicating the story and the impact that a satellite mission has, um, such as Landsat, because it's the 50th anniversary of Landsat. So uh, maybe that was more than two sentences, but <laughs> that's why it was really exciting to me this fall. Um, 
Yeah, and and um, Gopika, how have you been? <laughs> oh, it's been tough. Um, you already said parenting is hard and managing everything that we do is super challenging. So we had a bit of hospitalization. My kid was down with RSV and a lung infection. So we were in the hospital for nine days. He's okay now. Uh, he's back to daycare. And I thought when uh, daycare starts, and he started daycare two months ago, I thought, you know, things would get easier for me. But no, then they start falling sick, and then they're sick at home, and then you start falling yeah. sick. And I guess it's just the reality of being a woman in science or a parent in science. Uh, you just have to toughen up and expect the unexpected and hope that your team and your colleagues are supportive and empathetic about it. Yeah, yeah, you can't really plan anything because as soon as you say that it's going to be a normal week, then all of a sudden that's when uh, everything goes out the window. Um, it's been really scary to see how many, like on Twitter, some other folks have been talking about their kids struggling with RSV this fall, hospitalizations, um, parents, you know, like, yes, the strike in Ontario has affected us, but it was only for two days. But then, you know, pneumonia, COVID, all these things are going around and people are navigating. Um, and I think it's really important time to have empathy for your workforce and to be supportive and understanding and don't say, oh, not this again. Um, you know, it's it's people are are struggling and and um, burnout is real. So I think it's a, it's a very important time in our field to be empathetic for one, one another. Yeah. So um, as we said in our last episode, we will be joined this entire season by our news correspondent, Rafaela Tiengo, who's here, who's going to tell us all about what's happening in the EO and the geosciences world. Hi, Rafaela. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're so excited to talk about what new and exciting things you have to inform us about, um, yeah, the EO field. Hi, girls. Thank you. I will start with the cloud-based remote sensing with Google Earth Engine, Fundamentals and Applications, a book, which is out. And this free book is a product of years, and our host, Morgan, is one of the authors. The book has 55 chapters and more than 10,000 lines of code. It's impressive. Morgan, as one of the editors of this awesome and helpful book, would you like to say something? Yeah, thanks, Raphael. And thanks so much for the shout out to the book. Um, it was, yeah, like you said, many years of efforts and conversations. I think it first came up as an idea between my uh, former PhD supervisor, Dr. Jeff Cardell, and Nick Clinton of uh, Google. Uh, in 2018, we were at an Earth Engine User Summit in Dublin, Ireland, and, um, you know, over a beer, they were talking about, it would be really cool to have a book. And then a couple of years later, you know, we made a lot of strides. Um, Jeff, this is really his pet project for the past couple of years. Um, uh, it started heavily right before I went on parental leave. So we, um, you know, I was there to invite many authors with uh, our other co-editor, um, David Saw of uh, University of San Francisco. and. Um, it was awesome. We have so many representatives from across the Earth Engine community, um, a lot of different applications, and, you know, they're written for very different audiences. Um, so you can really like each chapter could be used in very different settings, whether it's a government training, a classroom, you know, just teaching, having a training on the side. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities for this. Um, so it's it lives online. We'll have the um, the link in the show notes. Um, and then it will also be a, a static um, ebook and book through Springer. 
um, that will be published officially, I think, in the new year. So the book uh, website is the best place to access everything. And uh, just on that note, we have weekly author trainings that are being recorded. So for every chapter, there's an hour-long session where you learn everything. So you can teach yourself Google Earth Engine from, you know, start to finish um, through this book, through the free resources. Um, so yeah, thanks for the shout out, Rafaela. <laughs> Thank you, Morgan. And congratulations also. And talking about Google Earth Engine, the Google Earth Engine Developer Satisfaction Survey is now available. So if you are a Google Earth Engine user, please fill up the survey to improve this geospatial analysis platform. The link to the survey you can find in my newsletter number 13. So let's move on and talk about Jedi. The Climate Change Space Project could get extension under new proposal, and this is a great news. We all know JEDI, which is a forest mapping laser, and is a critical tool in the fight against global warming. JEDI is the first of its kind to use lasers to make 3D maps of Earth's forests in order to measure how much carbon those forests store and would release if burned. So yeah, it's definitely great news. Absolutely great news. Thanks for sharing about both of those. I think just a reminder for our community, your feedback and support is so important for these projects going forward. So when you get a chance to, you know, provide a case study for JEDI or, you know, provide some feedback to the Earth Engine developers, these things make a huge difference in terms of the future of the field. So, so be active and follow Rafaela's newsletter so you can get all the links to these things. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Morgan. And another great news is about the ICIESA Archive Collection because it's now available to users. The DSAR products are available to download after a pre-registration and three modes are available for ICI Level 1 products. They spot up to one meter and ground resolution in Level 1A and Level 1B and they strip and scan modes with lower resolutions and two processing levers levels, the SLC and the GRD. It's worth a look. Cool, that's great news, Rafaela. And uh, could you also just tell us about uh, all the conferences that are coming up in 2023? Because, you know, this is like November, December, other months when people start thinking about abstracts so that they can submit it eventually in January. So um, yeah, tell us about what's happening in 2023. It's time to think and organize about the upcoming conference in 2023. So we created a list of some conferences that can interest uh, our remote sensing community. The International Conference on Remote Sensing and Geographic Information will be held in Prague, Czech Republic in March uh, 29 to 31. So the EGU 2023 will be held in Vienna as always, but also online. It will be in April 23 to 28. I will try to go there. The Munich New Space Summit will be held, of course, in Munich in May 15 to 17. The ESA Polinsar Biomass 2023 will be held in Toulouse, France in June 19 to 23. Sisters Asa is trying very hard to come to Polinsar. One of the co-leads will definitely be there. So you can access a more complete list of 2023 conferences in my newsletter. The link is in the description of this episode. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rafaela. So great to hear and good to know if people want to track you down at a conference to say hi, where you will be and as well for Sisters of SAR. Now 
we'll just go right into our interview with Karen Joyce. Um, you can listen up and enjoy. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Karen Joyce. Um, today, we're going to be talking about all of your research and background. You are an associate professor in remote sensing at James Cook University in Cairns, Australia. Can you tell us more about yourself and how you got into Earth observation sciences? Hi, Morgan and Gopika. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast today. It's, it's so nice to see you and chat with you again. It's been a little while since we've, we've talked. Um, so how did I get into Earth observation? Is This is actually a, a long story and it goes way, way back. I, I used to work at at Kodak Express and I don't know how many listeners remember Kodak as a as an organization but I used to develop photos for people you know but way back when we had the take your photos take them to a lab to get your 24 photos printed or maybe you had a 36 roll of film but that was that was my job in school and I started working in that job when I was 16 years old and it was I was in second year university and I was still working there during my university holidays. And as I was developing the, the films and printing photos for one of our regular customers, he was, a re- he was a wedding photographer and used to come in all the time with his photos for his clients. And we started chatting about, um, about what I was doing outside my part-time job. And I mentioned that I was at university and studying geography and and he asked me if I was if I was studying remote sensing and I hadn't actually taken any subjects in remote sensing at that stage but I knew it was on my study plan for the following year and I I didn't even really know what remote sensing was and and I sort of told him all of that and and he said that he worked for Geoscience Australia which is Australia's biggest public sector government organization that does all the remote sensing GIS spatial sort of stuff and I guess kind of similar to the USGS in in the US for example and he said oh hey you know I work at I work at Geoscience Australia why don't you come out and you can have a look at the sort of things that we do and I was like yeah cool that sure why not (laughs) why would I not do that and I, I went out and I, I remembered sort of touring the facility and everything, and that's where, that's where they do a lot of Landsat processing here in Australia. And they had this really big screen where they were streaming Landsat data so you could see it rolling down the screen. And so, you know, we're talking late 90s, so this was like seriously high-tech to see satellite imagery on a screen. And I just thought it was the absolute coolest thing that I'd ever seen and so it really got me excited about doing that for for my undergraduate degree and then yeah as soon as I actually started doing the subject I really loved it as well so that's kind of how I started in it all and it's just always been my thing since then. Wow so you actually worked in a red room like developing photos and all of that at the beginning? Oh no no not so not the not the red room type stuff but those the machines that you basically just fed the fed the negatives into and it spat the photos out but it was cool. cool because what it did was it it taught me also how how you mix colors and learning about um, red, green, blue, cyan, magenta, and yellow, and adding adding tone and density and stuff. So when it came to in remote sensing, understanding that that you know 
you get cyan by mixing green and blue together and you get magenta by blue and red and those types of things that so many other students really, really struggled with the colour mixing and then understanding what happened when you had near infrared in there as well. That had actually been something that I had been doing for years but not even thinking about it in the remote sensing sense, just in the photography sense. That's so cool. And you're still involved with Geoscience Australia. Yeah, so it's actually interesting. I'm due to go out in the field today with a team from Geoscience Australia, and I've never been in the field with them. So it's, it's kind of interesting that this is a topic of conversation. Um, so Geoscience Australia is located in Canberra, which is where I grew up. But I live in far north Queensland on Irrigandji land, sort of the area known to most people as Cairns or Great Barrier Reef area. And they're, they're up here for a field campaign this week. And I, I asked if I could come out today to see the sort of stuff that they're doing with their really big drones. And so, yeah, after I jump off this podcast, then I'll be heading out to uni and, and heading out to the field with the team, which is really exciting. When you say big drones, what do you mean? They have a bit of a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what they call their drone, but it's it is this it's it is a huge one and they, they use it for carrying hyperspec LIDAR and doing doing some BRDF measurements and yeah all sorts of stuff that hopefully I'll learn a little bit more about today as well a lot of it they they use for calibrating and validating satellite data products when did you get into using drones in your research I started with drones around about 2013, I guess. It was a little bit earlier than that that I started getting interested in them. So I was working in the Northern Territory, which is sort of the top centre of Australia, and it's a pretty remote area. And one of the things that we realised when we were up there, and I guess I'd known this from being a grad student as well, is that if you want to do an aerial survey, like a traditional aerial survey, the mobilization costs for that aerial platform are huge. So back in, it would have been about 2002 when we did a survey of the reef where I was working for my PhD, it was $40,000 for mobilization costs for the aircraft to come up to do the survey. And that's not even sort of considering the survey itself. And so when I was when I was working up in the territory, we were doing a lot of stuff with fire and just looking at the exorbitant cost of mobilizing an aircraft to get to site and looking at well, you know, what are the better options that that we might have out there? And I I'd been in the Australian Army and they were they were using drones there as for surveillance purposes. And I was like, oh, you know, this would be super cool to be able to use this for some of the work that I had previously been doing in my academic career before I was in the military. And I I had said to said to my colleagues in the army at the time, oh, you know, really, really interested in the drone work you're doing. But when they were doing it for surveillance, they had their their cameras pointing forwards and or sort of at 45 degree angle, I guess. And I was like, oh what if you point your cameras down? And they said to me, this, so this was back in, it would have been about 2005, and they said, oh, why would we want to do that? I was like, well, obviously, why would you want to put your cameras facing down? Like, to me, being Nadia makes perfect sense, right? That's what you do to map. And it was such a struggle, and I just I couldn't, couldn't get them to understand where that 
why that might be useful as a, as a military asset to do that. And so anyway, later when I was out of the army and I'm back in the Northern Territory looking at fires and then it sort of brought me back thinking, oh, you know, what about the drones that I was looking at in the military? And I met up with some colleagues from NASA at a conference and it was around about the time they were doing a lot of wildfire mapping in California with drones and so started talking with them about what they were doing and then I took a sabbatical to NASA Ames in Mountain View in 2013 and spent a couple of months with them there and across to UC Santa Barbara as well and looked at what they were doing with drones and I was like yeah this this is going to work for us and so came back to Australia wrote a couple of grants got some money and got started with drones that way so it's been it's actually been a really long journey from I guess the early 2000s just having some seeds in my mind to where things are at today. That's very interesting I didn't realize that your background with the sabbatical um, I was just at NASA Ames last week, adjacent at Geo for Good, because they have the Bayview campus. Yeah. yeah, and it's NASA Ames is so overwhelmingly, intensely beautiful. Just looks like the hub of all knowledge. Just looking at it, so it's so cool to hear that 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 was a part of your journey towards drones. Um, yeah, it was so cool, and yeah, it's just an amazing experience to be there. And when I, I saw on Twitter that you were in Mountain View, I was like, oh, I wish I had have known about that conference. And I, I didn't know anything about it. It looked like there was heaps of really cool stuff going on that week as well. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to put that one down maybe for next year and trying to get out that out to that one. I like really love the Mountain View area and I, I absolutely loved my time at Ames and really good collaborators there. And yeah, I remember my, my first day of my sabbatical there, I knew I was in the right place because there was a talk. And then afterwards they had massive chalk chip cookies. And I was like, this is a place where you want to work. It's amazing. You get free cookies. <laughs> cookies. That's awesome. <laughs> That's wow. That's really cool to hear. It you should definitely come to Geo for Good next year. It's like a very empowering experience, and it's like an amazing concentration of uh, driven people in one spot who all have the same shared values of like doing good with their research and and companies. And it's a very empowering experience. And then this year to have it be right by NASA Ames and have people from NASA Ames there just kind of it brought it full circle seeing that. Um, it's that's awesome <laughs> yeah it's definitely on my hit list for sure just yeah the the hashtags I was seeing coming up across Twitter after I'd seen your initial post I was like how did I not know about this conference this, <laughs> had, this has to be on my list now <laughs> absolutely can you speak also a bit about your experience in the military it's really interesting to hear about how you know you saw drones being used in that in that part how did you decide to join the military I come from a military family where my um, grandfather and my uncle were in the air force in the United States and they were pilots and so that's actually how I was exposed to remote sensing imagery was through air photos that my grandfather took from his cockpit basically my dad my granddad and my brother they're all in the navy Wow. Yeah, it was, I thought every kid grew up with like air photos in their house and I didn't realize that's not normal, but it's interesting to hear, you know, you were doing this firsthand um, in the military and, and thinking about these things early on. Yeah, so I guess I, I started in the army as an undergraduate student 
just part time, just really to get some extra extra cash while I was studying. So we had a, a university regiment there on campus, and I had I had gone in. I, I guess I'd or I'd, my my dad was in the army as well, so I'd always sort of been exposed to that and had an interest in it. But yeah, when I was at uni, I'd, I actually just went to an information night. And I, I went along and, you know, I put my name down because it was an information night. And then the next thing I know, they're like calling going, yeah, right, so the first course started, starts on this date. Yeah, come in and get a uniform. I was like, oh, I didn't know that I was actually signing up to be in this. But, oh, okay, all right, let's just go with the flow. And I, I signed up actually just to be within the transport corps as a truck driver. And so I was really just support staff doing doing basic stuff and then it was a couple of years after I was I was sort of in that role and I was by that time tutoring the remote sensing and GIS classes at University of Queensland and there were a couple of one year there was a couple of students in my class that were senior soldiers in in the army that were doing a lot of remote sensing in the army and they we'd just been chatting one day because they would come in in their army uniform to class and so I talked to them about what they were doing and they so they found out that I was also in the army but doing trucks <laughs> they're like why are you doing that why don't you come over and join us and they were in they originally been in survey corps that had been consumed into the engineering corps but as a as a squadron that does all the survey stuff and they're like you know come and come and play games with us instead <laughs> so i transferred out of transport and into survey uh, still as a, as an undergraduate and then early phd and it, it was interesting. I remember going out. So the the way it worked with the Australian Reserves was, and it probably still is is this way, is you work on Tuesday nights for usually three hours on a Tuesday night and then one weekend a month, two weeks a year is sort of a catch cry, I guess. So, yeah, so I, I go out do, during university holidays and, and do time there and, you know, working in general mapping stuff. I remember my one of my first experiences when I when I went out to the squadron on one of these Tuesday nights and there weren't many others there and I, I turned up and I was asked by one of the senior soldiers they said okay yeah all right well you're here so let's let's get you started doing some work how good are you with computers and I was like well, I don't know I can I can use a computer and and they said okay all right um what about what about excel can you use excel I was like, yeah, I think so. I don't know where this question's going, right? And and so he goes, okay, all right, I'm going to come back in a second. And and he came back with a, a pile of topographic map sheets and said to me, this is a map. And I was like, okay, all right, no worries. And, and he said, so around this map is all this information. So you can see a legend, there's this bit and there's this bit, which is a scale. And, and I said, okay, all right. So bearing in mind, like I'm a junior soldier and I'm not going to say to a, to a senior soldier, yeah, I know what you're talking about, that's fine. And he said, so what we want to do is to get all of this information around the edge of this map and put it into a spreadsheet. And I was like, okay, all right, I think I can do this. And he's like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, yeah, this is going to be fine. 
And it's like, all right, I'll come back in, I'll come back in a bit and check on you. And so I sit down and just went through the sheets and, you know, put all the peripheral map info into the into the spreadsheet, which presumably was going to go into a database at some stage. And and he came back and he's and he's like, Oh, how's it going? I was like, Oh, yeah, yeah, no worries, it's finished. And he's like, You finished? And, and I went, yeah, and he clearly didn't think that that was possible that that could be finished in a short period of time for someone that didn't know what a map was. And he looked at it and he's like, Oh, this is perfect. I said, oh, okay, all right, thanks. And he said, oh, so what do you do outside the army? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just a student. I said, what are you studying? I said, oh, yeah, I'm just about to finish my PhD in remote sensing. <laughs> and he just looked at me and he's like, right, I'm not going to repeat what he said because they're probably not really appropriate for a podcast, but there were some expletives in there and he's like just scrapped everything. He's like, right, let's go on a tour and see what we really do. <laughs> And he was he was so good, you know, from that day on, making sure that nobody else ever looked down on me for my rank in the army. Um, because he'd be like, right, you need to you need to talk to Karen. She's like, she does this, and don't just consider her as a junior soldier. She this is what she does. Um and I when I finished my PhD, I then I went and did officer's training and then came back and worked full-time in the army for a couple of years. And yeah, it was, it was really great. I, I loved a lot of the work that I was doing when I was in the army, lots and lots of people that I'm still connected with and, you know, reach out to if I need something or they need something. So yeah, it was, a, yeah, I met my husband through the army as well. So yeah, a good period of my life. So, okay, one kind of story that for me, when I first came across your work, which is kind of a roundabout way, was I was teaching a course on object-based image analysis, and all of your slides from teaching are super accessible. That's how I learned about it. I I remember just like, oh, it makes so much sense when you explained this, this is what object-based image analysis is is and how you know I could teach it to other people in my classes that weren't necessarily from a remote sensing background and accessibility in remote sensing seems to be like a major part of what you do and how you approach it not just from teaching but also sharing your research and also getting folks into remote sensing do you do you want to talk a little bit about that for us yeah for sure and I can't believe you watched some of my YouTube videos so the the reason I started my YouTube channel was when I was when I was teaching up in the Northern Territory about half of my students were online or external students so again way before COVID this it was a, a regional university where that was just part of our part of our gig that we'd have some face-to-face and some online and when I when I started at that university, so I started at the at the very end of 2009. So I started teaching in 2010, and the the common way that we would do things was to prepare all the semester's materials, cut it to a CD, and then that would be sent out to the students. And so I did that for my first year of teaching. And as I was doing it, I was like, oh, but there's other things that I want to be sharing with the students as I go and sort of things change. And I want to be a little bit more dynamic and and I want to give them videos. And I, I, I want more for the way that we're teaching rather than just cutting a series of PowerPoint slide decks and PDFs. And, and of course, the, 
the level of organization that means you know that you have to have everything set for your whole 13 week period or however long your semester is without being able to go mm, what am I going to do next week oh maybe I can get a guest speaker in or whatever it is so so I started the following year I started cutting a lot of videos and putting it on an intern just a, a website for for the students that I gave them the website and and I quickly realized that the file size of the videos was was quite large for the sorts of stuff that I wanted to share. And then I thought, oh, why don't I just why don't I just make a YouTube channel and just putting put stuff up on YouTube? And a lot of people at the time said to me, oh, but then everyone will see it. And I thought, no one's going to see my stuff. And so what if they do? Actually, I don't care. Like it doesn't really make that much difference. So the following year, yeah, I put everything up on YouTube and then I don't know people started watching it outside of my students and they you know they still do like I I actually get a lot of people comment like you did Morgan or people come up to me and go oh, I've watched your what's your video about either NDVI there's one up there that has had quite a lot of hits or my my Garmin GPS how-to videos <laughs> people go oh I know your voice I know your voice oh you taught me how to use the garment okay right (laughs) it's kind of it's kind of fun and like I don't there's no point in having knowledge held up if somebody else can use it and use it to progress whatever it is that they're doing we all move forward so I I just that's just my modus operandi I guess I, I don't I don't mind I have no need to keep anything to myself you touched on something that I think we should talk about here. So Karen, we know you, so Morgan and I know you from uh, previous endeavors. Um, and from my experience, you what you just now said about how your knowledge and everything that you've experienced, you want to share that with everybody. You're really true to your word. We've seen you, how you try to make this field more inclusive, how you're fighting for all of the others who might not be as privileged as the rest of the people in our field. And we know that you you have so many initiatives going on that are trying to make our world a better place. So two of them that come to mind right now, and I guess we have limited time to talk about them, are Geonadia and SheMaps. And um, very quickly, would you like to tell our listeners um, about both these initiatives? Yeah, for sure. Thank, thank you. <laughs> and and you and Morgan Gopika are fully in that space of making making our work inclusive as well so thank you also for being part of of what I do and what we do together as well and I think that's that's really important to recognize because it's not something that any individual can do by themselves it's just a it's a it's a thing that we all do together really uh, but that, that goes to what we do with both SheMaps and Geonadira as well. I do have teams of people that I work with that help to make other aspects inclusive. So SheMaps is, is a business that we created back in 2016, and that's really all about helping to, to make STEM or science, technology, engineering, and maths more diverse. And that comes down to who, who we perceive works in that space or does STEM and and what it is that STEM actually is. So a lot of people think that STEM is all about test tubes and 3D printers, but forget that there are so many aspects and basically pretty much everything in the world that we do is STEM in some aspect really. 
But when when teachers look to be teaching STEM at school, they think, oh, what is what does this incorporate? And it's actually quite limited. And of course, with my geospatial bent, I want to make sure that that gets put in the curriculum and people see how cool it is to work with all the sorts of stuff that we do with Earth Observation as well. So really broadening out what that diversity aspect of what STEM is and who it is that does it. And that really came about by realising that within the Earth Observation space, we we have a critical shortage of, of women and largely the decision makers in the space are um, most mostly men and mostly white men as well and we need to look at what the pipelines are and then what the cultures and leadership is like within organizations to make sure that we can make a change so she maps really works in that space we we do a lot with schools working with teacher capability and helping them understand the issue the challenges that we have with unconscious bias in stem fields but at the core of what we do, we teach curriculum on using drones and geospatial technology, which is a bit built on obviously my background expertise as well. So that's heaps of fun. We work around Australia, <clears throat> excuse me, and we have people in 15 different countries running our programs, which is super cool. And yeah, love, love working to see the see local communities running our programs and running our programs in their, their local languages as well, which blows my mind. That's heaps of fun to see. So that she maps. And then on the, the other side of that's very much on the education side of the house. But then what I also realized is that we, we have a challenge with when people go out to capture data with drones and particularly in the, in the mapping space, is that it's not always that easy to have that that workflow of capture the data, have it processed, and then being able to feed back into the ecosystem to share the data that are being captured. So again, we can have this whole, what I like to call the circular data economy, where people can contribute and everybody gets to learn from each other. And that's just, it's just not easy to do. There's no really good central repository for drone data. There's that and that whole workflow space wasn't wasn't actually there so we created geonadir to fill that gap as well so people capture their data they upload to the platform we author mosaic it for them and then provide the tools where they can either pump that into a gis with a web mapping service or download the author mosaics or just use it natively on the platform with some of the native some of the mapping tools that we have there as well so that helps the schools, that helps local communities, people that don't want to get licenses for some of the software to process data and also don't necessarily have the computing capabilities or expertise to do it as well. So really trying to bring through from kindergarten or your, element, your lowest elementary school all the way through to industry, how we can get people. So I actually did... Uh sign up for Geonadia and part of it. And when I was doing my postdoc in Singapore, I was looking for in-situ data or drone data of uh, coastlines because I was doing coastline detection. So I did actually go in and look through every single image that you had for different coast uh, coastal areas in Australia. But unfortunately, I didn't have any Sentinel-1 image that I had processed for Australia. But I did, I did actually look for Southeast Asia. So I do see um, the benefit of having such a great repository so we have data in 43 different countries now and we've got over 300,000 drone images up there from around the world. 
And yeah, definitely encouraging people. If you've got drone mapping data for any of your listeners, if, if you have drone mapping data, you don't need to process it at all. All we want is the, the raw photos. We'll do the rest for you. And you can also jump on the platform and, and have a look at the data that we already have all around the world. It's super cool. It's I I get a kick every time I have a look at our global map and see more dots appearing on it. I'm like, oh, there's, there's all these people doing really, really cool drone stuff that I get to learn about every day just by seeing what their data looks like and the types of applications that they're doing as well. It's awesome. I love it. And how much work is it to actually process all the images that uh, people load and produce then workable drone data? Yeah, it's a good question. So initially we were doing that manually. So and but it was largely built on my own data, which I had to process myself anyway. So that's not that big a deal. But we do we have a processing engine in the back end now. So it's all completely automated, which it needs to be. There's yeah, there's just no way that I could keep up with manually processing people's data. So as soon as someone uploads a data set, it sends a ping to our server to kick up the engines to stitch it all together. And then, yeah, that happens. And then it pings back to the user to say, hey, congratulations, you're now on the map and go check it out. It's so how much work is it? Well, nothing for me, <laughs> but for the bots, yeah, a little bit, but yeah. gotta love AI. <laughs> That's awesome. So I guess our homework for our listeners is to go check it out, maybe upload their own drone imagery, because that is so cool. Like, I wish I had known about it earlier in my PhD. Maybe I would have gone into that realm of science if it had been that much more accessible, um, sharing imagery like that. Yeah, well, yeah, it wasn't when you were doing your PhD, Morgan. So. No, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't. It was like the last semester. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to ask you a bunch of questions and you have to answer these in one or two words and really quickly. All right. Mm. So the first question is your favorite cuisine or your comfort food? Chocolate. Would you prefer free medium resolution or expensive high resolution data? Free medium. What is one thing that no one knows about you? Ooh, I don't know. You stuck me on that one. That's really tough. <laughs> well, one thing our listeners don't know is that it's 5 a.m. for you right now oh, when we're doing this podcast recording. <laughs> okay. What is the biggest challenge working with drones? Processing the data. And the best thing about working with drones? freedom and autonomy who's the one person in eo you'd love to work with oh my goodness there's so so many of them um can i say that i would love to have a a proper face-to-face meeting with the two of you and kate and um and megan and uh, and the rest of the team that we've worked on with christina and michelle catherine that we worked on together for for writing our discoveries paper that'd be awesome and who's your role model oh i don't think i have a single role model at all i i have different Different people that I look up to in different aspects of my life, um, but definitely not a single person that I roll myself after. Awesome. Thank you so much, Karen. Um, it's interesting to leave off on that question, role model, because you really are a role model for both of us setting the scene with she maps with your research and your um creating an accessible environment for remote sensing. So thank you for your time today and sharing those stories. It's so fun to get to know you more. Thank you. Thank you. It's really, it's lovely to hear that and absolutely awesome to chat with you both again. (laughs) And one day we'll actually meet.
Okay, so wow, um, that was a really fun-filled conversation with Karen, and um, it's special for us because we worked with her before. And we hope that um, all of you listeners have learned um, a lot from this episode, and you've also been inspired and empowered by her as we do every time we talk to her. So for this episode, we'd like to share an awesome article from EO Hub to celebrate the ongoing COP27 summit in Egypt that has been happening throughout this month of November. The article is entitled How Satellite Data Helps Us Understand Climate Change and was posted by the author Justina Vanskowska in April 2022. In this article, she provides an incredibly rich overview of the climate change problem and describes how satellites can be used to monitor these impacts. Check it out in our show notes when you get a chance. And thanks again to GeoAwesomeness and Up42 for your support this season. Thank you. Well, Morgan, do you also want to talk about uh, who we're going to feature in our next episode and give our listeners the three facts? All right. So here are the three facts for our upcoming episode guests. First, these ladies are from the same South American country that is experiencing rapid deforestation, but also contributing cutting-edge remote sensing knowledge. Second, they frequently collaborate in a forest monitoring research cooperative. And third fact, the episode will be recorded in their shared native language um, with over 280 million native speakers. So this episode was led and coordinated by me, Dr. Gopika Suresh, and Dr. Morgan Crowley. (laughs) And audio editing was conducted by me again, since it was so successful the first time. So it's unfair for me to say Morgan's words. So I'm going to hand it over to Morgan to say that we are... We're humans first and earth observation science is what we do. So be kind, be empathetic and be creative. Until next time. Until next time. Stay safe. Don't get into hospitals. Be careful. And prosper. We didn't get to talk about so much. We didn't talk about sea cucumber poop. And you promised that as well. We just did because we brought it up. We brought it up.